0: Welcome to Every 68 Seconds. I am your host Courtney, and this is going to be season two of my podcast. Last season, we talked a lot about my own experience as a sexual assault survivor and also a lot of other topics that I felt don't get talked about enough in this subject. So, definitely go back and listen to that season from the beginning just so you can understand why we're even here and what has happened to me as well because that'll play a lot into this season Um, and in this season we're going to be talking with significant others of survivors, survivors themselves, hearing different perspectives and stories from other people and as well as some experts on the subject. So just keep in mind as survivors are listening to this that you Know you know that some of these things will be a little bit triggering to hear. Um, We don't really sugarcoat things here because I don't think that it really helps anyone, so just keep that in mind as you listen. But I hope that you are all just as excited as I am to do this season and to listen to all these awesome people. So let's jump right in. All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Every 68 Seconds. This is Courtney, and I have a pretty exciting guest this week for you guys. Another therapist, um, but different than our last guest from last week or two weeks ago. Um, we have Leah Freemanheim with us, and we've just been connecting right before this. We really didn't know each other much before mm-hmm. getting on and recording this, but I I'm glad to have a new friend in her and to know more about her and um, to have her on to share with you guys tonight. Um, Leah, tell me more about who you are, why you're here,
1: all the good stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I am a therapist, so I have been practicing therapy for six years um, in Southern California, like Orange County area. Um, I love being a therapist. It's I think it's the best job in the entire world I know I'm biased but <laughs> to be able to sit with people every single day and get to hear their stories and be able to be a part of their stories in a comfy chair where <laughs> they're comfortable and they're I, it's just it, I love it so to be able to do therapy to be able to talk about psychological issues to be able to connect with people it's 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 great. So that's that's the thing that I absolutely enjoy, is I love my job. And then outside of that, um I am married. Um I just got married on New Year's Eve of this last year, which was fantastic.
0: It's an awesome day to get married. <laughs> yes,
1: yes, it was it was great. Once once we had the idea, it was like, oh, we have to follow through on this. This is great. Um, our anniversary will be easy to remember. It'll be a fun day <laughs> to celebrate it. <laughs>
0: yes.
1: Was it cold though? I feel like it was, it was freezing. It yeah. was, I mean, it's uh, relatively speaking. I mean, this is California true, talking, true. but it was, <laughs> it was in the mid forties and we had the ceremony outside. And so oh man, people, that's, there was recently a time where I met someone who I guess was on my husband's side. It was like one of his parents' friends. And I met him and he was like, Oh, I think I was at your wedding and I was like, oh, you were? He's like, yeah, it was really cold, right? And I was like, yes. That
0: was, that was <laughs> so that it. It yeah.
1: <laughs> so that is how, and my parents even have a joke now, Where if it's cold outside, they'll be like, but it was it's not wedding cold. So it was
0: <laughs> Oh my gosh. You'll different. never live that down, that's for sure. I will not. Yes.
1: Um, but that's been a big life change. Um and then in the meantime, I mean, I, I do love, I've recently gotten into indoor rock climbing in the last couple of years, right before COVID, I started doing that. And I really love that. Um, and I, my family's local. So that's great. I love spending time with them. I'm a big reader. I was actually an English major for my undergrad.
0: Really? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I switched, I switched gears about, about halfway through college, I realized that, if I were to continue on and get my master's in English, then I would be reading books, which I love, but like writing papers and going into theory about people that didn't exist. Mm. And what I realized I really wanted to do is to be able to interact with people who do exist (laughs) and to be able to still learn their stories and conceptualize what's going on for them. But I think being an English major has actually really helped with that. I, I I wouldn't change that or go back from that, okay. that really yeah. was helpful in me seeing clients as a whole narrative rather than just like kind of what they're cool yeah are. it's like
0: a different perspective almost that's really mm-hmm. cool that's mm-hmm. awesome well um share more about what it is you do with therapy the kind of therapy you do all that kind of stuff
1: well overall I mean I the thing I like about therapy in general and just kind of being more of a generalist, um, with some specialties here and there is I do see a variety of clients. So I usually have a few kids on my caseload all the way up to people that are in their 60s and 70s. Sometimes, um, I primarily get referrals for sexual addiction. So I, I'm not like a certified sex addiction therapist, but have really just leaned into focusing on that a lot of usually about a a third of my clients are sex addiction clients, either partners of somebody struggling with sex addiction or are the person themselves struggling with sex addiction. So that's primarily what I've really started. Um, I started focusing on from the very beginning and had a passion for, and I was sharing with Courtney before the podcast, a little bit about my story. We are sharing our stories of what kind of led us to where we are today. Um, (laughs) And like most therapists that specialize in something, it was because of something I experienced in my life. So it's even before becoming a therapist, I was in my early twenties and was in a relationship with a guy who's who really truly was a wonderful guy, just had a lot of just unresolved issues he hadn't worked through, a lot of woundings that hadn't been dealt with. He, he didn't, you know, kind of in therapy terms, he didn't know how to emotionally regulate. Um, and so dating him, it was like, oh, here's this really great guy and didn't know that he was really struggling with um, like unwanted pornography use. So he like wanted to stop. He didn't want to keep doing it and just found himself going back to it again and again. Um, and what ultimately ended up happening is his, his pornography viewing progressed to the point where he wasn't telling anyone, but he was engaging in webcamming. So he was going online and it, it went from videos to then, oh, let me click on this and it it ended up being him interacting with you know real life women um and there was an instance where he he actually ended up getting caught because he got blackmailed as intense as that sounds but what ended up happening was he didn't know he was being secretly recorded by someone that was in another country Um, and they were recording him and simultaneously hacking into his computer and got all of his email contacts and his Facebook friends. And, um, they basically said, like, if you don't wire us this amount of money within this time frame, we're going to send this video to all of these people and just list it out every, I mean, it's, uh, everybody's worst nightmare.
0: <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. That is,
1: um, what?
0: That was terrifying. Like I yeah. can't even imagine. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So he was, he kind of couldn't contain it anymore. That freaked him out enough where he ended up telling um, the pastor that he was working for, he was a, he was a worship pastor. Um, So he told the head pastor and he ended up telling me, um, wasn't honest with all of it at first. I think really had this impulse, like a lot of people do that struggle with this to hide um, for fear of hurting me more. And so the whole story didn't come out until later, but I, it was so hard for me to go through. I I was 22, I wasn't even 23 yet. Um, so, so young trying to navigate this. And there was, um, lots of moving pieces to that. And I ultimately decided to step away from that relationship, but it really, I was telling Courtney, it really made me realize that the people that are struggling with sexual addiction, often they're not this like creepy guy in the corner, you know, these are pastors and doctors and teachers and therapists, and you know, these are, these are everyone that, you know, are, are walking around and are, you know, might be really strong Christians or might be, it it really doesn't, there's no demographic in and of itself that is kind of a stereotype of it. And so I, I really found a compassion because I really did care about him and basically dealt with it by reading Every single thing I could on, like, what leads people to start looking at pornography that compulsively, and how does it progress from the point of watching videos to, you know, looking at webcams or, you know, being with women in real life? And so understanding that was a huge part of my healing. Um, and then obviously, I had compassion for the partners of people struggling with this because they were, you know, like I, I wasn't even married at that point. I can't imagine being in a marriage and finding that out and how painful that would be. And so I just really found myself really wanting to work with couples struggling with that, um, and ended up getting extra training in that and have now had a lot of experience in working with couples and partners and those struggling with it. And so that's kind of what became my, um, like I said, I hesitate to call it my my specialty at this point um, because it takes so much to be a specialist in it, but really what I'm, I'm known for by my colleagues and being able to handle sexual addiction cases.
0: Wow. Well, thank you for what you do, because that sounds like a lot. And especially being somebody that experienced that yourself, like, I'm curious how that, how, if, if that was difficult for you, like if you, if you had, um, struggles with that, like triggers and things like that, like as you're Mm -hmm. doing therapy for these people, and then you've also had a similar experience, like what is that like?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, at first in the aftermath of it, and I was telling Courtney, I know that clinically at that point I did experience trauma. Um, It wasn't under the PTSD category, but it, it was certainly trauma from that experience. And it felt like everything was triggering me at that point. I was just assuming every guy that I've ever known was like this hardcore porn addict and like cheating on their wife And like, it was, it was at such a fearful place for me at that time, because it was, if this is a great guy that was hiding this from me, how am I supposed to trust these like pastors that are speaking on Sundays or my employers, or it, it was just, no one is safe. Um, and so, which I think is very common for people who have experienced trauma. So to be in that place where I'm like, I, I can't trust anything that anyone says, I really had to lean a lot on the church community I was in to lean a lot on my family, on my friends that I opened up to, um, to read a lot and, and I, and lots of therapy, honestly, it was really helpful. That was the first time in my life I had gone to a therapist. Um, and even at that time, it was, I really feel like even within the last 10 years therapy has just really exploded thankfully where lots of people the stigma is going away a lot but even at that time I did not I knew like one friend who was going to therapy by the time I was 22 and I think the experience is very different for 22 years today yeah but absolutely I, yeah but I I was it was kind of an intimidating thing to see a therapist but I think really through healing it was helpful and then I had to deal with it like with what you're saying when I started seeing clients those triggers especially in the beginning if it was a very similar situation to what I experienced totally brought stuff up again and so had to talk my supervisors were aware of my story with that and why I got into that which was really helpful they were very empathetic to the different things that would trigger me but at that point too thankfully I was years into school and was ready like no I see the bigger purpose in this and this is something I would have never chosen to get into unless God had brought me through you know yes. So
0: far, so absolutely. Um, I was curious too. Like I, so I studied psychology for my bachelor's degree, so I did a lot of classes and
1: uh-huh.
0: did a whole class on like therapy, um, types of therapy in psychology, I guess. And I was curious, like, what your specific therapy, if it has a a name, like, because I know there's cognitive behavioral and Just so many different ones. I I did an interview with a therapist last week for last week's episode um, on EMDR therapy. So I'm curious what your therapy that you practice is.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of EMDR, so I I I also am trained in EMDR. So I actually have a lot of clients right now that I'm doing EMDR with. Um, And I would say, for my specific theory, pretty early on, it was clear I was more of a psychodynamic therapist. And the way I'll explain that to people that maybe aren't as familiar with psychological terms is it's kind of, it's taking some of those those core things to psychology, like thinking about what is unconscious in us and making it conscious. Like there can be instances where you know we're walking around with our significant other and something they say you know kind of triggers us and we don't know what's going on well it's because we have this subconscious experience of maybe something our parents said growing up or it's just being aware that there are lots of things that are under the surface that can be made known and mm-hmm. that is often that insight is oftentimes what can bring clarity and healing so i you know there are times i'll use some you know cognitive behavioral interventions like if somebody's dealing with anxiety of course, we want to be able to treat the behavior and know, okay, what are the thoughts you're having that's leading to the anxiety? But I love to go one level deeper of, okay, why are you having anxiety in the first place? Like, let's dig deep. Let's look at your family of origin. Let's see when these started, what was going on, what the triggers are. So that's, that's where I really, really felt like it's been helpful for my clients, at least is being able to do psychodynamic. And then of course, bringing in lots of like attachment work too. Um that's cool. And then I see a lot of couples as well. So I would say couples and sex addiction are kind of, a lot of them go hand in hand too, if couples have experienced infidelity. Um, but I got Gottman trained too. So that's usually the modality I'll use for couples is I'll do the, the Gottman focus therapy.
0: Gotcha. Okay. That's super interesting. I didn't, I don't know. I mean, I study psychology, but I don't know a ton about therapy because I didn't go into that personally, Um, but I didn't realize that you as a therapist can practice different kinds of therapy with, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like I was always like, oh, there's like this certain therapist that does this type and Mm -hmm. that's it, you know? So that's very interesting that you you, you can pull from different kinds that you feel help that client the most, you know?
1: Yeah. And that's how I'll talk to clients about it too. If they come in, I'm like, I have this core of this is how I work. And I'll kind of, even if I'm not using the term psychodynamic, I'll explain how that works, but then I will absolutely, if there's an intervention that's going to be helpful, but it's from a different modality, as long as I know how to use it and it's helpful, I'm like, I'm, I'm all for that. Cause sometimes there needs to be more solution focused work or kind of more direct work.
0: Um, yeah, that's awesome. Well, some people that are listening might be curious as to why I asked Leah here, because I know this podcast is, you know, geared specifically towards, you know, sexual, sexual trauma, sexual abuse, different kinds of abuse. But, um, obviously the title is all about sexual assault, but I just felt like my mom actually knows Leah's mom somehow and like thought that, you know, I should look into having her on as a guest. And as I, you know, learn more about, what she does, um, I was hearing kind of this term betrayal trauma, and I was realizing that there is trauma, and it is almost kind of like, for some of your clients, maybe, I don't know if it was for you too, but even for friends that I know that have experienced some kind of infidelity that's related to sexual addiction or pornography addiction, there's like some kind of sexual trauma even that happens where then um, the idea of sex or just everything around sex is now traumatized because of kind of the actions of their um their partner even if it wasn't towards them that there was any kind of assault if that makes sense so i still wanted to have Leah on and like talk about this because I feel like it's a little bit different yeah but it still is a, a certain kind of trauma and I was wondering if you could Leah like talk about what that trauma looks like. And if betrayal trauma is like, a, a, um, if that's like an actual term or if that's something that I just saw online and yeah, I guess talk on that a little bit.
1: I, you know what I'll do? I, betrayal trauma is definitely a term I've heard. I know it's not like, there's a lot of terms that aren't specifically like in the DSM as like, yeah. this is a category of trauma, but it's helpful language to be able to distinguish. So a lot of times with clients, I'll use the term relational trauma. Okay. um and so it's it's helpful to be able to be as um as accurate as possible so for example if i had a client who came in and let's say she was a partner of someone who she found out was looking at pornography um and let's say there was this huge trigger that came up and and she's really experiencing trauma from that of oh my gosh she's been looking at all these other women i can't believe this most of the time it's going to be in that attachment Trauma, like there's going to be some kind of break in an tr- attachment. Okay. Because here's my likely primary attachment figure now at this stage of my life, who I trust, who is now completely broken that trust. I feel really betrayed. There's usually, I know, I, I don't, I hesitate to put a percentage on it, but most of the time, there's not going to be a specific sexual trauma related to that, but it's relational trauma that can then lead to. Issues with intimacy, issues with trust, but the core of it is emotional intimacy has been broken. So that that's that's the trauma. However, there are certainly instances where the the spouse the spouse that had the addiction or the the significant other that had the addiction, their partner can absolutely be sexually influenced by that. So what I mean by that is, if there was and I often I'll give this disclaimer too throughout my time here, but I'll often say like male, female and male being the one that's often acting out. Um, Certainly females can be the ones that are, you know, betraying and that that happens way more often than people realize. Typically speaking, it's often the male. So if I'm saying that, that's, that's why. Um, But let's say the, the husband, for example, was asking his wife to engage in sexual activities that she wasn't comfortable with because of his addiction, right? Like he had this addiction, it's getting worse. And now he's asking her to do things that she's not comfortable with. Or let's say he is, you know, texting pictures of him or his wife to other women, or he isn't, he is wanting to invite other people into the bedroom, you know, for sex, or he is forcing himself on her. So there's all these other elements where the addiction can then lead to sexual trauma, even though most of the time, it's that betrayal trauma or that relational trauma you're talking about.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting. And I guess what kind of, I mean, I kind of, you kind of did touch on it a little bit, but what are the emotional effects, I guess, both for the person who has the addiction and then also the partner, I guess, in the relationship, what kind of emotional issues are they ending up dealing with, I guess, or maybe even dealing with in that, in that relationship and then maybe even coming out of the addiction what kind of emotional issues are happening there
1: well certainly in in the aftermath of it all you obviously have the trauma you have the high like betrayal you have you know just distress you have all these things even before it comes out though there are emotional issues that are often unresolved and most of the time it is pornography or whatever the the sexual acting out is, is often a coping mechanism for unresolved emotional issues, right? So one of the main ones, for example, is um, like shame, right? So let's say he has a bad day at work. He feels really embarrassed because his boss made this comment. He doesn't know how to deal with his own shame or his own emotions. Oh, I know, instead of dealing with my own shame, I'm not even going to, it's, it's not even like, oh, this is a choice I'm making. It's, this is often the only way they know how to be able to cope. So there's an author that I, I really like um, and would recommend for anyone that wants to like do a deep dive into this topic. Um, <laughs> but it, the book is called Sex Addiction as Affect Dysregulation. And I mean, it's a, it's a big title, but basically what, what she is theorizing and what we see over and over again in research is if there was not emotional co-regulation when kids were little, that is only going to lead to them regulating in unhealthy patterns. So the example that I'll often give is, let's say you have a toddler, and this toddler is at a birthday party, and a clown walks into the room, and this parent, if the parent is attuned to the child, you know, most of the time is able to see, oh, they're getting kind of nervous, right? Their eyes might get really big, they get kind of you know, like nervous and overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah and the at that point has a choice of how they're going to handle that so most people would say a secure parent you know if they notice it right because parents don't have to be perfect but most of the time if parents notice it they're going to kind of walk over to the child they're going to get down next to the child really close they're going to go oh you know that's new or Was that making you <laughs> a little nervous or they're going to wave at the clown they're going oh Okay, they look safe. Don't mean to hold you. They might pick their child up. They might kind of walk and get create a little distance. So they're what they're doing, and they're not even realizing it is they're regulating with their child, Mm. their emotions. That kid's really scared, and the parents breathing calmly and slowly. Their voice is really calm. They're even showing it's safe to engage a little bit, but I'm not going to force you over there. That's great that child is likely the next time or the next few times they're in a situation, let's say mom isn't noticing that there's something scary happening. They're going to be more likely to subconsciously remember, like their parent modeled to them what safety looked like. So they might breathe a little bit calmer. They might kind of subconsciously tell themselves like, oh, it's okay. Or they're learning how to calm themselves down on their own. what what we really run into as an issue is, let's say that parent is looking at that child in that same situation, and they're like, oh, they're fine. Or they, I mean, honestly, some parents might even push the kid closer and laugh when they run away of like, oh, that's funny. If you have enough of those instances over time, that child has no idea how to handle if they're scared. Like they have no reference. It's, I don't know, I just wait until it goes away or I shut down and that child statistically speaking i mean this is scientifically proven is going to grow up and find some way to cope with their emotion like they they need something and so that is going to be you know like overspending or overeating or sexual addiction or emotional cutoff it's it's just going to be handling it in wrong ways and that's what we see over and over again with people who do struggle with sexual addiction is they often never learned really how to engage with their emotions and cope with them and it's not necessarily, it's hardly ever a way to be able to get a sexual need met. It's most of the time to resolve issues of loneliness, of not feeling good enough, of feeling abandoned. Um, that's, that's often what you see are those emotional things that come up that they're not dealing with, which is hard.
0: I never would have thought that that was the reason. Like I've not, but it actually, in my mind, I'm kind of making connections of maybe why men tend to be the ones more often having this issue, like this sexual addiction, mm-hmm. um, because I would say from just observation and talking with other men that oftentimes they are more likely to not get that emotional regulation from their parents because it's, it's, you know, toughen up or, you know, mm-hmm. that yeah. yeah. And, and I feel like girls when they're younger are more, Maybe even overly protected by their parents, or more, you know, they they have that their parents almost have maybe more sympathy or empathy with them when they are having emotions versus I've seen and heard from other guys that I know that they didn't really get that emotional regulation because they're a boy. So I feel like that there is a connection there, and that's that makes a lot of sense to me. And I I never would thought that because one of my questions was going to be like, do you see? Um, the people who have sexual addictions having had sexual trauma in their past, like something really major like that. And maybe it is, that is um, a thing that happens, but it sounds like it's something even so simple as just not learning how to regulate emotions.
1: Yeah. It's, it, it honestly can be across the board and I've, and I've worked with both um, because there there's, there's another book I'll, I'll plug that especially for those that are in the faith community or believe in Jesus or are just in that realm. There's the, at least so far, the best book I've read on unwanted sexual behavior, um, which is how this author classifies it kind of in that sexual addiction realm and faith, it's called Unwanted by Jay Stringer. And when I read it, I was honestly, I was just like irritated the whole time. Cause I'm like, I would have written this. <laughs> I was like, he did this so well. This is so great. Like, there's nothing more that needs to be said. He just, he killed it. So um, the reason I like it so much is because it really acknowledges that the faith part of it and the damage that's been done there a lot of times in the church community. Um, Mm -hmm. but he really talks about how there, there needs to be this addressing of how our brokenness has then led into this acting out behavior. And he did a survey. The whole book is based on um, the survey he did of almost 4,000 people who, um, you know, struggle with sexual addiction of some kind, some kind of unwanted sexual behavior. And 20% of them did report having been sexually abused um, previously. Yeah. So there is still this huge chunk who, are in this place where he talks about this dynamic where especially if you've experienced sexual abuse and especially if it was just at this younger really formative age so little kid young adult just between that realm what can happen is it is either oh I feel this desire to kind of shut that part of me down completely that sex drive so I've had clients before that have so hated the sexual part of them they've said I just wish I didn't have a sex drive I just wish I like you know, essentially could like castrate myself and not have to deal with this because this is, I, I hate that part of myself. So it's either I'm just going to shut all of that down or it goes into the realm of really, really sexually acting out to be able to mask the memories of what happened to them. Um, the issue oftentimes is that there can be reenactments that can happen. And so mm. in that same book I referenced earlier, the affect dysregulation book, she talks about an instance where she was, she talks about a few instances and all, I won't get as, you know, graphic with them just kind of as a, I, I won't, I won't do like, I want, I want there to be an awareness of triggers that might be there for people, but essentially the same ways that they were acting out, she wanted to explore, well, why do you act out in that way? You know, why is it in that exact way? You know, if you are masturbating to porn why is it in this exact position or why are you into this specific type of sex Mm -hmm. and often what she would find is these instances where when they actually got to a point where they were talking about their past sexual abuse it lined up like exactly with the ways they were acting out sexually did they realize that they had not really yeah it was it was so like for one, for one man, for example, the reason she was asking, and I will give the trigger warning because I'll, I'll talk more about it in detail, but she was asking him, you know, well, why do you masturbate? Like laying down on the bed? Like, why, why is that something that you are? That's just seen, like, she asked him in detail, like, well, how do you masturbate normally? And that's honestly a realm that I have to enter into a lot is asking clients very detailed questions about. Yeah. <laughs> the wow. Them. Because it can be so insightful. And Jay Stringer talks about this from a religious perspective of what's going on there. And he was like, Oh, I never thought about that. And then through exploring it over time, he essentially talked about his sexual assault slash rape that had happened to him. And that was the position that he was in when it was this older kid that had done that to him he didn't even realize that was his sexual template which is so sad but but that that was his really early formative sexual template so he's just thinking there's something wrong with me why do I have this issue and he's not even thinking about the fact that that was a sexual experience that he experienced earlier on and his addiction is pretty directly tied to reenacting that and it's the brain trying to make sense of what's happened like the brain is like if I enact this enough, maybe it'll make sense to me and it won't be so triggering. And it's yeah. such a double edged sword because it's never, it, the trauma is never going to make sense. The abuse is never going to no. make sense. And yeah. your brain gets caught in that place. That's what flashbacks are, is it's going, maybe if I think about this again, it'll, it'll finally make sense. And and that's what's happening a lot of times with addicts too. It's just happening in an acting out way.
0: Wow. That is Crazy. I did. I did not know that at all. Um, I'm curious if you can kind of explain because I know at least maybe now it's not as much of a stigma, but just like addiction in general, like addiction to any. I feel like people have a very misconstrued perception of it. Mm-hmm. So I would love for you to kind of explain like what is addiction, mm-hmm. what actually happens in the brain with addiction, like so that people know this is a serious. Mm -hmm. Like it's an addiction, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So if you could just explain like what that looks like.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, you're absolutely right. I think I, I see kind of one of two situations happening. I see sometimes partners come in and, you know, they're saying like, my husband has an addiction and he might, let's say he might not want to watch it. He might think it's wrong to watch it. Like it's quote unquote, like a sin to watch it. And, you know, he might watch it every once in a while, or like, or he watched it once and they'll come and be like, he has an addiction. And I really have to do some educating there to go, okay, even if it's not an addiction, of course, it's still a concern based on their value system of that not being okay. And that being really violating to her, but we're not going to call that clinically like an addiction, right? It's going to be, okay, that's where it's really helpful that Jay Stringer talks about it being unwanted sexual behavior. It's Okay. This is unwanted we're not going off of the you know the addiction side of it over there but also people might not understand that they do have a problem to the point where it would be classified as an addiction the problem that i've seen over time is a lot of people will want to know well what's the cutoff in, of an addiction like how many hours a day do i have to be watching porn for it to be an addiction or how many sexual partners do i have to be with for it to be a problem right because for some people that i see let's say morally they have no problem you know, like having multiple sexual partners, they might just see it as, well, I'm just like having a good time, whatever. That sex isn't a big deal to me. They might not realize, oh, this is like, this is a problem. So I really love using um, the American, I think it's just the American Society of Addiction Medicine. They kind of have the ABCs of addiction. I haven't looked at them in a while. So I'm gonna try to remember them as best as I can. But they essentially talk about the different things to look for with, you know, one of those being, you know, is, has there been an effort to stop that's been unsuccessful, right? Like is, is there this effort to go, okay, I'm trying to stop this behavior. Oh, and I can't, is there an increased tolerance, right? So oftentimes what we notice with drug addiction is the person needs more and more of the drug in order to get the same effect with sexual addiction. What it is, is it's variety, So what, what it'll be is, you know, there's only so many hours some people can watch, like, like if they were to watch the same porn video, that's not going to have the same effect over time. So that's how you have people start to look at different videos. And that, that talking about trauma reenactment, right? They're looking in maybe one particular category, but it's getting more and more extreme. So oftentimes if people are in that place where their tolerance is getting higher and higher and they're getting into categories that they never thought they would get into before, or they might not even ethically agree with, that's something to look out for. Um, if there has been an effect on their you know, social, occupational or other important areas of functioning, like if they're watching it at work and it's putting their job in jeopardy, if they are you know, looking for an escort and that's affecting their family life, understandably, that's a problem. And so what a lot of those different things have in common is, is this a problem that's affecting other areas of life? Is it increasing in the way that the person is needing to do the behavior or the substance in order to get the same effect? Is there an effort to stop? Is there, is it unwanted? Those are the things that I'm going to look for where I'm like, okay, if this is taking a lot of time or it's really affecting your life, now we're starting to really enter into that realm of sexual addiction. Um, Even though t- technically sexual addiction isn't in the DSM, um, a lot of people are pushing for it to be. Really? Gambling is. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> that's so, but it's that's- anyway. And I think I I honestly think the main reason and and it's getting work to be destigmatized is gambling is something where everyone can kind of agree that like spending all of your life savings probably (laughs) isn't a good idea. But with sexual addiction, I think um, the I think the American Psychological Association um, is very hesitant to be able to put some kind of disorder on sexual behavior because of them not wanting to regulate that so there's lots of other things involved <laughs> but even yeah the sexual the affect dysregulation book i mentioned i i don't believe she has any kind of particular faith that i've ever seen i don't think she's a christian um and she's one of those people that's kind of pushing for like hey this isn't just a bunch of pastors wanting to like condemn people for having yes sex. This is like a problem. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. Cause I'm, cause I'm seeing, I'm thinking in my head, okay, there's definitely people who, who, who don't have the, like necessarily a Christian moral, um, mm-hmm. working. Yes. And they don't see looking at porn as a problem and they don't see having multiple, you know, like those things are, that's a normal thing for them. Mm-hmm. And that's great. But there are, like you were just saying about the addiction, like there are certain criteria that would categorize that as an addiction Um, and there's a point where it kind of goes past that like threshold and then it becomes an addiction so I see I see why there's they're probably hesitant to do it because they're like well not everybody has the same moral ideas and opinions and yes that's totally true but I mean say I think you could say similar things for alcoholism or drug like drug addiction because some people are like, oh, I can do whatever drugs. Um, like right. if you a state like Colorado where some more of them are maybe legalized and you could just do those, but it doesn't mean that you can't be addicted to that, mm-hmm. if, even if you are morally okay with doing those things. Um, right. But kind of on that idea or topic, I guess, um, without, I guess, like maybe sharing your opinion on it, because I don't know if you can, but like, how have you seen, Porn be harmful. I know we're not like making an overall statement like porn is bad. I, I personally think that, but I'm not going to speak for you. But have you just seen porn be harmful? I guess in these instances and relationships and things like that.
1: Well, and in the, I I would even feel comfortable saying in the broader psychological community, there is continuing to be more awareness that this is a problem. Um, oftentimes when I'll talk to somebody who's like, oh, I don't see the porn as a problem, especially if it's not in a the therapy context, if it's in a therapy context, you know, that's kind of their choice. And I'm, I, I can't sway them one way or the other. That's not my role. But if I'm talking to somebody just kind of in general, and they don't see it as an issue, when I tell them what I do, one of the things I'll talk about is like one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing genre of pornography is child pornography. So now we have this issue where I don't know if you saw what happened last year but Pornhub came under so much fire because like so they are from my understanding one of the largest I, I think maybe even the largest porn website I think, I think they are yeah they get more traffic than Netflix than Twitter than Instagram I mean it's unreal so they came under a lot of fire cuz they were saying they approve all of their videos um they in their terms and conditions they say yeah you know we approve all of our videos well there's uploads of child pornography on there and people are saying, well, they need to be held accountable because that, that's them saying they're approving for child pornography to be distributed, which is highly illegal. Yep. Uh, um, and so they ended up removing, I think it was a third of their content last year.
0: And Remember that.
1: Yeah. It, it was... Crazy to me because I'm sitting there, you know, looking at kind of social media as as random people are kind of posting about it, and it's trending on Twitter. And (laughs) and people are like, "Oh, they removed a third of their content," and I'm like, "Let's just take a look at the type of content." Like what it was, yeah, right. right. I don't know if anyone's advocating for more child pornography, um, at least out in the open. So, so that's one of the biggest things that we see is that uh, when you talk about arousal templates, meaning just what is somebody aroused by, right? Somebody might start off watching pornography and let's say they start off saying they don't have any moral qualms with it. If they start off watching it, it very, very easily delves into, like I said, the variety in order to be able to continue the addiction. And the reason for that is because there's a few different things that are happening when somebody is watching pornography, psychologically speaking, like they've they've hooked up you know, people when they're watching pornography. And usually it's this combination of excitement, anger, and disgust. Really? So it's this weird, like high of emotions that are I'm excited I'm doing this. I'm kind of like disgusted for myself for going into maybe these genres that I'm looking at. I'm like angry in general, right? Like usually sometimes it's self-anger, especially if there's a moral issue there where they're doing something that they know they shouldn't be doing or they're angry at that the fact that this person created this because then they're doing this and so much of this is subconscious they don't realize they're feeling that but those are the emotions that are kind of lighting up when they're watching it and so in order to get that same level of response they have to watch more and more hardcore content often and so when we see that as I mean at the very least that's a harm I come from the perspective um just from even my own moral standpoint and um, and that I see the damage that pornography can cause relationally, even from the beginning. Because what you're doing is you're taking your arousal template from being with a real person and you're moving it to an, a non-real person to you. It's, it's an object. And that's how we move more and more into object, objectification. So even talking about value of women and um, women that are demoralized, you know, I think there was one study that said that, They, they studied, I forget how many thousands of pornography videos, but they found that up to 70% of the content was degrading to women in some way, like was either verbally degrading to women, or it was forcing them to do an act that the women, the woman would have found degrading that this is also an issue with gender. And so a lot of the guys that come in to see me as a therapist, it's interesting because I'm a female. And so they are now watching All of this content, not even realizing that they're in a place where their arousal template is going more and more towards degrading women. Even if you ask them, Oh, do you value women? Yes. And and they fully believe that. But what they're doing to themselves is they're constantly putting them in a place where they're objectifying women. So part of the healing for a lot of my clients is them learning how to relate to a female in a real, non sexual, non objectified way, which is really, really valuable for them. Uh, and so those are some of the things that, you know, are, are the common ways I'll talk about pornography really having an effect on us. And then obviously lots of research has been done as far as the um, dopamine levels and just kind of the dopamine pathway that gets activated in the same way a lot of other addiction does too, where it, it keeps the person absolutely coming back for more and more because it's it's one of the strongest dopamine hits that you can get versus something like you know overspending or that's still going to spike dopamine but pornography is certainly or sexual acting out in general is certainly going to spike that
0: yeah like a lot more yeah um how how often I don't know if there's like a stat for it but like how often is this porn addiction going outside of being online and then being in person or like more interactive like your experience had been with your boyfriend like How often is that going outside of watching online?
1: It is, it's certainly a smaller percentage. Um, I don't, I don't know the percentage off the top of my head, but I know in general, most people, most people that look at pornography are not veering towards in-person interactions. Um, I think a lot of people are like, there, there is a bigger amount of people that end up going into like chat rooms or talking sexually or texting sexually with people. Um, but often like actual meetups or going into massage parlors, that's going to be less of the time. And so that's why I'm always holding this balance because I think some people, especially in the faith community are like, if you look at porn, you're going to end up with a prostitute and it's just <laughs> not going to be the case most of the time. But I, I have worked with, I have worked with clients where it's progressed to that point, And often that's if nothing is getting addressed. So If it's kind of just this unhindered thing, and then it's this combination of maybe past sexual trauma reenactment, um, maybe just unresolved loneliness. And so the the loneliness being a factor that part of their arousal template is getting that emotional intimacy met. It's porn isn't going to do that for them anymore. They're going to feel more connected by going to a massage parlor, and that's going to get a greater high for them. Um, And so that is, that's if there's also all these other needs that are unmet with that, but it, it does happen. And if it's unchecked, there is at least the vulnerability that it could go in that direction if it's not checked.
0: Okay. And so if there probably statistically are people listening that may struggle with watching porn. Maybe they don't have an addiction, but they just struggle with unwanted sexual activity, like you were talking about. Um, if there's something that you would say, what would you say to those people um, that are struggling with that? Like, what would be something you think they maybe need to hear or are longing to hear
1: from somebody? You know what I mean? That I love that you asked that because it makes me so, I mean, glad that they feel, they feel comfortable opening up, but it also makes me feel so sad when I have clients that tell me that I'm the first person that they've ever told about this because what that communicates to me is they don't have a community that they feel completely comfortable sharing this with. And so, it, like I said, it's, I'm glad that they're telling me it's a great starting point, um, but that it is absolutely way more common than people realize. And I, I would even say specifically to the women out there, um, women don't talk about Sex drives, or <laughs> it's just not talked about. And so, me coming from a um, a religious background, I remember being younger, and you know, you go to youth groups, and they separate like, okay, boys go over here, and you talk yep. about porn, but we're not going to call it that. We're going to say like temptation or unique men's struggles. Yeah. And then the girls are going to go over here, and they're going to talk about body image. Yeah. And and I'll I'll feel comfortable sharing this because I've just realized that there's so many people that need to hear this. I was the girl that was like, well, I don't struggle with my body image, but I am fully aware as a teen girl that I have a sex drive and I don't know what to do with it. (laughs) Yeah. So and I did not talk to anybody about even feeling or experiencing sexual arousal until I was like almost graduating college when I talked to another friend about it. And so people don't talk about sexual arousal, temptation, masturbation, like people, especially in the church, people don't talk about that. But really, globally, women, especially, I think, feel really, really a lot of shame about it. And so when I have had female clients, the amount of shame that they experience and the amount of effort it takes for them to actually confess to me, it feels like a confession because they don't, they don't like it about themselves. But for them to actually talk about what they experience sexually, especially if they're single or if they're struggling with masturbation and they don't want to be doing masturbation. That's the kind of thing that I think can feel really intimidating. And it's so, like I said, it's just so much more common than people realize where most everyone is having to figure out what their sexual story is. Yeah. And especially for your listeners, if they have experienced sexual trauma, because that's a whole other element of, I hate that this happened to me. I'm also acting out sexually and I might hate that and I don't know what to do with either of those things. So to be able to go to a therapist and say, this is what my story is and this is what's happened and this is also where I'm at sexually with things. It's so scary, but it can be so freeing to be able to sit with in front of another human being and realize they're not going to run screaming out of the room. They're not going to look at you weird and go, "Oh, well, I've never dealt with that." <laughs> they're, they're not going to, or they're not going to shove Bible verses down your throat or tell you what to do, especially if you have a good therapist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The therapist.
0: Oh, hope so. <laughs> uh,
1: but that it can be so freeing, and sometimes for some people, it's helpful to be able to talk to somebody else about it first. So knowing that one of the things that cuts through the quickest to being able to find healing or be able to get through something that people are struggling with as far as addiction is it just grows in hiddenness and in shame so to be able to bring it out into the light to whoever they're comfortable with that they they know it's safe or if they don't have anyone to be able to you know go to a therapist that in and of itself is a starting point because then the therapist or their friend then it's okay what are the next steps like and often I'm going to be completely honest It's not going to be like accountability. It's not going to be, okay, text me every time you want to look at porn. Like (laughs) I I have just personally, through the clients I've worked with, that is often not what's going to bring long-term, it can be helpful, but that's not going to bring long-term healing. I think the reason I like the Unwanted book is because it really talks about, no, the core of it is how do we help regulate our emotions and deal with what's going on inside, deal with healing from our past trauma emotional or physical or sexual or spiritual and to be able to get to the point where oh I, kn- I know how to do this and I don't have to rely on pornography to get me through this trauma or to get me through this emotion I'm I'm actually experiencing community I'm experiencing being cared for I'm open about it um that's that's what I found have been the most helpful things
0: yeah well that's yeah. That's awesome. My other question was going to be like, how have you seen this therapy helping people? But I feel like you kind of answered that. Would you add anything to that?
1: I, yeah. I would just emphasize it's, it's oftentimes people don't realize that so much of it, like 80%, and this is a statistic that's just proven again and again, 80% of the effectiveness of therapy is the quality of the relationship between the therapist and the client. So you can have a therapist that knows everything they know under the sun. And if a person doesn't feel connected to them, it's not going to be successful therapy. If you are with a therapist that you feel comfortable with, that alone is what can often bring the most healing is I'm actually sharing my story with this other person. I'm feeling loved by this other person. I'm learning how to, I'm seeing how they're accepting me and I'm learning to accept myself in the same way, which is huge.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a few more questions that I have first being, what would you say to the partners of people who either, um, have a porn addiction or are acting out in other ways sexually that are unwanted? Maybe there's infidelity happening. We didn't really talk about that a little bit. We, we kind of focus more on porn addiction, which I think is okay. We kind of found our uh, main topic, but What would you say to those people who are partners with somebody that um is experiencing these unwanted sexual activities um infidelity and things like that
1: yeah it's it's just a we, we talked about betrayal trauma it's just a whole level of betrayal so even if there's not you know not everyone who experiences this as a partner is going to be traumatized so i think that's also important because sometimes it can feel like oh i'm just doomed to be traumatized if my partner's done this and it doesn't have to be the case, but often, I mean, at the very least, there's just, it's just, it's so hard to experience that level of betrayal and try to figure out how you can even learn how to trust that person again, um, especially if there's been infidelity of any kind. C- certainly pornography, like I talked about in my own experience, pornography can still have the tendency to be really triggering or traumatizing depending on this, this context around it, but infidelity, of any kind, texting somebody, you know, like being them, the partner being sexual with them um, is just, it, it can be so, so, so betraying. So to be able to give yourself, you as the partner, freedom to be able to understand that it's okay to feel really broken over this, the person who has often betrayed the partner, so the person who has acted out, especially if they want the marriage to work or the relationship to work, they're in a mode of, let me get through this as quickly as possible. Everything's fine. So they're in a mode because of their own not wanting to deal with emotions that might've very well led to infidelity. They're in a mode of, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Okay. Now we're fine. Right. Often. That's at least what I've seen is how long am I going to have to feel guilt over what I did? And so one of the things that the partner needs to realize, the betrayed partner is you have every right to be able to experience the pain that you're experiencing. And the partner has to be able to hang on to themselves and like hold on to that with you in order to get through it. And that's where usually couple, like I work with a lot of couples where there's been a betrayal. Couples need to be more supported during that time because the betrayed, the partner that did betray, I'll call them the betrayer, Um, the betrayer needs to be able to be held to kind of like, okay, you have to be strong to be able to get through this and you're not alone, but like you have to kind of face what you've done and the betrayal that's happened and the consequences of your actions and how it hurts other people. But also we still love you. You're not the devil, like you're, you know. And then for the person who was betrayed, it's giving them space to be like, you take what time you need to be able to experience all the emotions you're experiencing. You don't have to tie it up with a pretty bow. You don't have to force yourself to feel better. It's you just purely being where you're at. And both parties can be that with, while being kind to each other, right? Yeah. The betrayer can hang in there without being dismissive. And the person who was betrayed can hang in there without completely, you know, like hurting emotionally the other person. Um. And it's, it's a really delicate balance and it's hard, but it is absolutely worth getting healing over because it's an extra level of betrayal that happens that can be so hard. And the partners need to know that they can be given space to be able to build that trust again. Um, or if it's something where it's ended, like let's say the person left them or like the partner being able to do that work on their own, that that's still worth it for them to be able to know their work worth it.
0: Yeah, true. That's true, yeah. Um, and then my last question is just, for couples maybe that are listening or one of the partners that are listening who are experiencing this or have maybe in the past and like haven't really gotten into the healing like is there I'm sure there is and you'll say that there is but is there hope and like what kind of hope can they hold on to to like we can make this work when this has happened or when this is the reality
1: Mm -hmm. it's um often a a long road which people don't want to hear so I'll have a lot of couples that come in and they're like we're going to be fine in like three months, right? Um, (laughs) Probably not. Um, And, but I have absolutely seen couples where I'm biased, but I think the most helpful thing is for each person to be an individual and then to also do couples therapy. I know it's a lot of time and it's a lot of money, but if it's possible to be able to do that, there is absolutely hope in being able to see the couples that get to reconnect they're doing the work they're caring for each other they're taking the time and space to be able to understand what happened there um the ways that they need to be able to care for each other even more um I even saw you know I saw a couple today and we were just reflecting on how far they've come and how much I'm like do you guys remember where you were at you know a year or two ago like it's it's and I, I've had I've had couples say that all the time where they'll say in the beginning it just felt like we would never get to a place where we could trust again but because we're finally dealing with those regulate those emotional regulation issues that we weren't dealing with we're we're experiencing greater intimacy in better ways and so sometimes it takes people even longer sometimes it doesn't but it's there is absolutely hope and I am so glad that I get to see that with
0: couples Awesome. well those are all of those I had I don't know if you have anything like, you didn't say that you want to add, or I don't know, anything else?
1: I think it the, the point that's just coming up again for me over and over is the, the hiding in general can just create so much pain. So for people who have experienced sexual trauma in the past, um, and feel like there's no way they could ever talk about it. And it's something that they'll take to their grave, um, that I, I, I believe there's so much more to living than, than that and carrying that alone. Um, and then for the people who are really struggling with acting out and don't know what to do, or even the partners that feel they need to hide that on behalf of their other partner and saying, like, I, I could never tell anybody about this because what would they think of my spouse? There's, there's just so, there's so much potential for hiding there and that's, that's the thing that can create a lot of pain. And so being able to know, okay, what's the next step in being able to invite safe people into this is huge.
0: Uh, yeah, that's awesome. And I oh mean, I just, there's just so much information that you gave that I had no idea about. And <laughs> it's completely invaluable. Like I just, I think people are going to listen to this and learn so many new things. And some people that listen to this probably have some experience with stuff like this and i think hearing the biggest thing for me when i was kind of coming out of my own abuse situations that i've shared about on the podcast before was i want i want to find like people who've experienced exactly the same thing that i've experienced or something similar because it just felt like, am I crazy? Or am I like stupid? Or there was just so much shame. And just like you were saying, the more I hid that, um, the more it was like, I am really the only person that this has happened to, you know, or, you know, so it's just, it's so freeing to talk to people about it, to hear people talk about something that you've experienced yourself. So I'm hoping that this, that's what this has done for people that are listening. Like maybe you, are struggling with porn, or maybe you have um, engaged in unwanted sexual activity and you're in a relationship or, you know, just there's so many options. And, and I just hope that you've listened to this and I've heard um, some really great things that have made you feel seen and maybe make you even feel more open to talk to somebody about it. That's my biggest hope is that people listen to this podcast and they're like, I need to talk to somebody about this, whether, whether it's sexual trauma, whether it's like what we were talking about tonight, you know? Um, so that's kind of my hope, I guess, from this whole episode. I know it's a little bit out of left field. It's not the same as what we talk about all the time, but like, I just really think this is so, so important. And it's something that's really just relevant. I feel like today, um, you know, just all these things are super relevant. Um, so thank you so much, Leah. I really, really enjoyed this. Um, I hope y'all enjoyed it who are listening and yeah, I'll, I'll be looking forward to chatting with you guys in a couple of weeks.